Okay, today we are talking with Father Richard Rohr, who is the inspiration behind the Center for Action and Contemplation in the United States. He is a Franciscan friar, writer, and spiritual teacher with a ministry to the world. Many of involved in the whole kind of new monasticism area have been inspired by his many books and DVD recordings that Richard has authored and spoken to around the world. So it's a great honor today, uh, Father Richard, to be talking with you. It's an honor for me. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, so thinking about contemplative Christians, often being a contemplative Christian is open to being criticized. As some people kind of perceive it as being overly idealistic because they argue that to be a contemplative is impossible in the busyness of the modern world. In fact, some people say that contemplation and contemplative forms of prayer is only for introverts and that, that extroverts need something more external. What would you say to those, those criticisms? Well, it reveals the very good way you asked it, reveals the problem that contemplation, even the word in English, is confused with being an introverted personality. I often mm. quote that very line from Thomas Merton, who said the very thing. For me, contemplation is an alternative consciousness. It has nothing to do with loving quiet. Now, in fact, you will be content with quiet, but uh, it doesn't mean that you need to have a lot of silence to be happy at all. It means that you look out from a new pair of eyes, which I call non-dualistic eyes. You don't see mm. things in an argumentative, contentious way. Mm. So why do you think that kind of the whole contemplative approach is really important to the 21st century? I'm very aware that some people have said that the Christian faith has struggled because it hasn't got a spirituality and there's something about contemplative uh, spirituality, just putting the spirituality back into the Christian faith. So why, why in Christianity do you think that the contemplative path has been downplayed or underappreciated? Well, at this point in history, especially with the media technology explosion, any notion of, of seeing with an alternative mind is very counterintuitive. It just mm. uh, is, is, I mean, you have to almost rewire people, which is what early stage contemplative practice is. It's, it's giving you a new processing system. <laughs> and yeah. most of us don't have the patience to allow that rewiring. We just want answers, you know. <laughs> yeah. And we want contemplation even to be an answer. Mm. And a lot of people just grab onto the word contemplation. And as you well said, the only people who really are attracted to that are introverted personalities, which there's nothing especially holy or wonderful <laughs> about being introverted, you know, yeah. nor is there about extroverted either, for that matter. Hmm. So thinking about why action and contemplation is so important, I'm aware that you founded an organization in the States and it's just started up a new offshoot here in the United Kingdom. Why? What, what is the vision of this kind of idea of Christianity being about action and contemplation? You know, those two words are uh, really classic. Uh, they've recurred again and again in the monastic tradition, in the tradition of spiritual theology, that this was the dance. This is the counterpoint that has to be made into one united flow. Uh, 
Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said the greatest vocation was not the active nor the contemplative, but to put the two together. So that's why we often say that the most important word in our long title is not action, it's not contemplation, it's and. (laughs) How do you do both? So it really is. It's the great art form uh, that you really find at the heart of all religions. Maybe they won't use those words, but, uh, you know, engaged Buddhism is talking about the same thing. Yes. And it, and it seems that the real problem, I think, that many people face today is our kind of our addiction to consumption. Uh, and you've written quite a lot about the place of the ego and the preoccupation that we have with the ego and consumptive gratification. It seems to me that many of the spiritual seekers who kind of reject the church and are interested in spirituality rather than religion are desperately seeking to get beyond the ego. And you've written quite a lot about non-dualism and getting beyond the ego. Um, right. What do you think are the kind of perils for the church in the 21st century, which seems to be a, a kind of addicted to consumption? <laughs> well, you're being honest. I, You know, the, the church, while thinking it's so countercultural, really isn't. Mm. <laughs> it, by and large uses the same processing system, which is an egocentric processing system, that the secular world does. We just add some Jesus words or some religious language to it far too often. I think we got into that, Ian, for a thousand years now of emphasizing the shadow self as the problem. When in fact, the ego got off (laughs) scot-free. You could be a pope or a bishop, which we both know is true, Hmm. and be totally egocentric. You Hmm. could be a priest, as we both know, and be a totally uh, self-referential, self-driven person. While being always preoccupied with our naughty shadow sins. And I I think it became a... It became a smoke and mirrors game. I'm not saying there aren't shadow issues. But when the obsession with what I've always called the hot sins, uh, let the egocentric self remain center stage, you know you don't have very deep spirituality anymore. Mm. You just have what I've been calling for years religion as a belonging system, religion as a belief system, both of which ask very little of you in terms of actual change. You know that phrase that you and I are both familiar with in the Synoptic Gospels, often translated, you must lose yourself or die to yourself. I'm told by the people who know the Greek much better than I do that the word is really strong. It's saying you must renounce the self. Mm. Now, that's not a negative statement. It's, I think, very close to what Buddhism is saying, that this separate self and its its needs, its preferences, its choices cannot be the reference point. Mm. <laughs> it's too small a stage. It's too small a reality. It It is not what we would call the reign of God, which is a different starting point than what I want, what I need, what I like, what my country has taught me, what my denomination has taught me, that's all self-referential. And uh, mm. it's, it's been in charge of, of most of Western Christianity, as far as I can see. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking now that we're increasingly in this kind of post-Christendom context, 
Yeah. Which were, and the real challenge about how do we, with the self, be in but not of contemporary culture? It's. A, I'm quite interested to see that bubbling up all around the world is kind of these new monastic communities that are seeking to be some yeah. an expression of church in this post-Christendom context, which seems to be about getting getting beyond yourself, about the, the calling to loving gentleness and this kind of dialogical and humble relationship to the world, which in many ways you could say is following on a Franciscan sort of, of pattern of understanding of Christian spirituality. Do, what, what do you think about this new monasticism that seems to be bubbling up? You know, my contacts with it here in the States, in, of course, uh, Philadelphia, North Carolina, have been extremely positive. Mm. And let me tell you, just on a very human level, why I first of all trust it. You know, you and I both come from a whole tradition of spiritual reformations now for 500 <laughs> years. And we're frankly rather bored with them, because <laughs> we find again and again they don't reform anything, at least in my opinion. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not saying that as a Catholic, I would say that as a Protestant too. Mm. Uh, but when I meet these new monastic, and in deference to the friars, some call them uh, new friars, not mm. new monks, but at any rate... Uh, there's this non-oppositional character to it. Mm. There's this humility. I get calls and letters and invitations uh, from these folks saying, come and father us, come and teach us. We need elders, we need wisdom, we need the past. So, you know, this principle that Ken Wilbur uses a lot, and I've quoted in my last few books, mm. uh, transcend and include. That's the principle. All transcendence, if it's transcendence to a higher level of consciousness, always, always includes the previous stages. It doesn't throw them out. We weren't ready for that kind of reformation till now. Yeah. It's just like consciousness has advanced. And one of those places where I see it's really showing itself is what you're calling the new monastics. Mm. Humble, teachable people who are clearly seeking the reform of the church, but not by throwing out all the Catholics and all the Protestants and all the hmm. Bible, but saying, how can we include it? How so when I meet these young evangelicals in America who never would care for a Catholic priest or a Franciscan, <laughs> seeking me for advice, I'm just blown away. <laughs> this is a new mind. Mm. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm not saying I have the answers. That's not what, you know, or I'm needed now. Or I'm just saying this is transcend and include. That's good. Mm. Yeah. And then coming back to this, um, what Christ is, it, it, and I think this is coming out of some of the experiences of the new monastic communities, that, that many people outside the church seem to be interested in Jesus and not in the church. Yeah. Um, so what for you is Christ, and how do, do you encounter Christ through contemplative prayer? And it seems to be a bit of a revival of this kind of Trinitarian understanding of yes. God, yeah. understanding God in community and Jesus within that, drawing on a kind of, kind of this idea of theosis and contemplative um, understanding of, of encountering God. Is there a reason why this is all bubbling up now, and, and, and how would you see Jesus in the context of, of the modern world? Oh, I wish I had an hour, but let me <laughs> let me start from my own Franciscan tradition, and since I'm talking to the UK, I'm going to quote the man who was our great Franciscan teacher, John Dun Scotus, mm. a Scotsman who was really the founder of the theology chair at Oxford, mm. and uh, so he's from your part of the world, right? 
And he, he sort of laid our Christology. Franciscan theology was always an alternative orthodoxy inside of, of Catholicism. We were never kicked out, but we were always a bit mistrusted. And one of the reasons was that we emphasized the cosmic Christ more than the historic Jesus. And for building on Colossians, Ephesians, the prologue to John's gospel, where it's rather clear that the Christ existed from all eternity, <laughs> and that the incarnation began with the Big Bang. We didn't have that word then. <laughs> and the human incarnation, Jesus, began 2,000 years ago. When God decided to materialize was 14.5 billion years ago. Now, John Scotus didn't have those figures yet, mm-hmm. but in many ways it's astrophysics, the expanding universe, the knowledge our generation has of the nature of things, mm. the nature of reality, which is uh, just enormously expanding our notion of Jesus the Christ. Mm. So what I often say to uh, uh, Christian audiences here, and of course it shocks them initially till they get it, and they usually do get it, is that Christ is not Jesus' last name, all right? And when you make an affirmation that you believe in Jesus Christ, you're making two different faith affirmations. Mm -hmm. Most of us in the last few hundreds of years have somewhat made an affirmation of our belief in Jesus with almost no knowledge of the Christ. And you made a good point there, Ian. The Christ mystery immediately ties you up with the Trinity, (laughs) And we've got a much bigger notion of God, a much greater basis for interfaith dialogue, I might add, too, when Jesus isn't our only playing card. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Jesus is a part of a God who is much more a verb than a noun, if I can put it that way. So uh, this is great stuff. It is. And I haven't given it to an audience yet that doesn't just love it. Because it answers so many questions, even some American fundamentalists. Mm. Because <laughs> they, they can't deny the prologue to John's gospel. They can't deny Colossians. <laughs> they can't deny Ephesians. Mm. You know? Yeah, there it is. Uh, and, and going, continuing with that, really, then thinking about this Trinitarian thing and this understanding that God is practicing this kind of perfect love, perfect justice, and perfect inclusion. Good. Um, there's this really big problem in the world today where where human identity and violence seem to be closely related and, and often the church colluding with some of this violence. Um, right. For example, around the world, I think many people kind of just feel discomfort with the archetype that it almost feels like Obama needed to take out Osama um, in this kind of world of violence and redemptive violence. Do, yes, you, do, yeah. do you envisage a time when we in the West can get beyond this violent models of human identity? You know, uh, forgive me for referring to just one paradigm, but uh, I have been influenced in the last five years a lot by what Ken Wilber has also been influenced by, what we call spiral dynamics, which says there's nine levels to human consciousness. You don't have to accept that. Some say seven, some say six, some say five. But we're all seeing there is an evolution of consciousness, and you've got to be prepared to see there's a direction to growth, you understand? Mm. So um, if what they say is true, uh, they say most of our culture, certainly your culture, my culture, are pretty much level three in a level nine system, Mm. which is 
tribal consciousness. You know, mm -hmm. you saw it in the the wedding of your prince a few weeks ago. <laughs> we mm. saw it in, you know, Obama killed Osama. Mm. This is just the best uh, I'm afraid we can hope for, for a lot. But to make your final connection, Ian, that worldview is inherently, because it's inherently tribal, it's inherently violent. Right. It will revel in what you rightly call redemptive violence. Yeah. Now, once you can edge people up to at least level four, they begin to question that. Now, that is the work of spirituality, moving you beyond religion, which is tribal, to spirituality. Maybe still four is immature spirituality, mm. but at least you've got a few cautionary voices entering the field of tribal thinking, mm. you see. Yeah. So uh, I offer uh, any study of that spiral dynamics it just explains an awful lot of things it, you don't have to use it but for those mm. who need some explanation why we keep reverting to stupidity <laughs> after the enlightenment so-called after so many universities yeah. after oxford and cambridge and harvard how can we produce so many stupid people? Well, it's because, it's because you can even graduate from Harvard and be a level three person. You know? yeah. I see. Wow, that's interesting. Oh, what's the title it, of that book then, Richard? That's useful to know. Well, why don't you Google okay. Spiral Dynamics? I will. Spiral uh, Now, mm. a lot of us would call it integral theory. Integral theory. Okay. It's being used by more and more people because it just explains so much. Mm. But this kind of thinking began with Piaget, mm. Fowler, Kohlberg. I mean, it's been developing for, for 100 years that, yeah. that there is a direction to growth. <laughs> there is a direction to maturity. And to use my language, we now know that the lowest level is totally dualistic and the highest level is totally non-dual, <laughs> which is why we call it wisdom. Yeah. That totally leads on to my, my next question. Actually. Yes. Um, so in the MOOC community, we are committed to justice, action, dialogue and prayer, particularly around social, economic and ecological justice. Good. But, Good. There, but there is a problem. See, holding intention, activism and non-dualism. So how do yep. we, because there's a practical thing, how do you hold on to justice and um, being disciples around action and contemplation without becoming dualist, fundamentalist, angry and judgmental? Right. That, on the practical level, is the heart of the question and shows that you're involved in the right field, that you'd even ask the question. Uh, I think you have to start with dualistic thinking. When I teach non-dual thinking, I don't dismiss dual thinking. It's your dualistic sense of right and wrong, which first makes you angry at the injustice on this mm. earth, the oppression, the dishonesty. That's appropriate. Then you have to hold that tension, usually for some time, mm. and say, what am I gifted and called to do about that? <laughs> and that's a different question. And how do I do it? And I think you don't do it with the Spirit of God, to use our language. You don't do it with, with gospel wisdom until you say, yes, I see the injustice, but uh, now I, how do I approach that with an alternative consciousness? Hmm. Not just dualistic thinking on the left. Hmm. And Ian, this is what 
25 years ago made me found the center that I, I was involved with so many peace and justice projects, wonderful Catholic worker people and, mm. and Catholic radicals. But within a few years, I realized I don't want to work with these people. They're, <laughs> they're just as closed-minded, just as angry, just as immature. The liberal agenda is their ego agenda, but it's still ego-driven. Mm. It's still the need to be right, to win, to defeat the enemy, Hmm. redemptive violence, as you Hmm. called it. So we can't just be satisfied, and I know you understand this, with liberal politics. Hmm. I mean, you know, most of the time I'd come down on that end of things because they at least speak out against (laughs) injustice. But most liberals, I find, haven't done their spiritual work any more than conservatives (laughs) in terms of the actual transformation of that ego that we were talking about before. So mm-hmm. thank you for naming it. It's at the heart of the problem. Thank mm-hmm. you. And you'll get just as much pushback from yeah. the progressive people as you will the conservatives at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's your hopes, Father Richard? Because I'm aware you've started this center and it's been an inspiration to many of us. And it's great that your books have really helped um, us practically we're helping Christians move from being de-churched to finding faith again and also creating a, an understanding of the depth of what Christianity we think is at the heart of it this calling to this mm-hmm. non-dualistic thing what's your hope for what you're starting and what's bubbling up is it going to birth a different type of tradition in the church or how is it going to react to a world that's increasingly becoming violent and fundamentalist is this part of the future of the church yeah well I first of all, I have to say, I don't know. I, I We keep throwing out our little piece of the gospel that we hope is the gospel and trust is the gospel. Uh, I've certainly had more access to media, to books, CDs, DVDs than Jesus ever had. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm in no position to complain. Uh, but I do feel that uh, I've received more response and more people who get it, like yourself, than I ever, ever expected. Uh, and I often feel that I'm in a posi- position to uh, to let go of it and to say it's this next generation that's going to take it and unpackage the implications of it. As I said, I turned 70 in two years, mm. uh, and my plan is to stop traveling after that. Uh, to, to really trust that I don't have to make this happen. Uh, the non-traveling for me is almost part of my message, that I don't need to keep trying to save the world. Hmm. Uh, it's still God's world, and, and God knows this stuff, and he uses people like you and I as instruments. Hmm. So um, I do think the consciousness is quickly emerging. Uh, I had a conference at Swanick last year on emerging Christianity and in your country, and here were people from all denominations, and we were all more alike than different. And there's been no central teaching office that has told us all to think this way. Do you understand? Yeah. And the historic reasons of Anglicanism or Methodism or Catholicism were sort of just boring. I hate <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but it's like, why would anybody mm. keep defending any of this? Why should we be victims of 16th century arguments you know yeah Mm. so um the fact that it's moving rather quickly now we'd also see that the opposition to it Mm. 
is increasing equally. I mean, the hatred of polit in politics in our country, mm. I, I can't remember it in my lifetime ever being as hateful, mm. as divisive, as cruel, as unfair as it is now. So you can just see the, the people circling their wagons around level three, tribal mm. thinking. Sarah Palin for us probably... Uh, <laughs> exemplifies that, you know, mm. and wherever she goes, the level three and level two people, I might add, some level one, I think, come out of the woodwork cheering her on. Yeah. Uh, so it's sad. It's sad. Mm. But both are true. Just so hold that non-dually. That yes, the, the wisdom is growing, but the opposition is also growing. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Father Richard. That's really helpful. Um, oh, and, it makes me happy. Um, and yeah. please hear that this will be really helpful for people in the UK and beyond who are inspired by your work. So don't give up. Don't stop because you're, <laughs> you're inspiring us to keep going. <laughs> okay, Ian, you're a delight. And okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net.